Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 311 of our TIC Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Socially Serving, an interview with Sarah Lombard. My name is Ashley Marba. And I'm Richard Johannesson. This week, we're introducing Sarah Lombard. Let's look at her journey as she starts as an entrepreneur and then develops Lyme symptoms. Let's look deeply into how her symptoms started and what it took for her to get diagnosed. The difference between being treated by a Western medicine doctor versus a Lyme literate doctor and who that person was that gave her that clue to look in that direction. Without further ado, let's listen to Sarah Lombard, Socially Serving. Hi, Sarah Lombard, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And uh, not only are we excited about having you, but we're really excited about having a special guest co-host in Ashley Marber. So actually, let's say hi to the folks. Hi, everybody. Hi, Tick Bootcamp. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. So so folks, just so you know, Ashley is going to begin the podcast by um, introducing Sarah to all of you, and then we're going to go wherever the spirit takes us. So Ashley, why don't you say hi to, to the um, folks again and, uh, and start getting Sarah ready to go on this journey with us. Okay. Hi, Tech Boot Campers. Hi, Sarah. Hi. <laughs> start by just telling us general information, how old you are and where you're living right now. Um, so right now I am 27 years old um, and I have grown up in Michigan, um, just outside of the Ann Arbor, Detroit area, um, Canton, Michigan. And almost exactly three years ago now, my boyfriend and I had actually moved out to um, Scottsdale, Arizona. So that's where I'm currently at. Very nice. So describe your life before Lyme. What were you doing for work or school? What was your social life like? Your life with your family, your friends, any special interests? So before Lyme, um, I felt almost invincible, I guess. It was all the way back in high school. So I was just one of those teenagers. Um, It's been about 10 years ago now. Um, And during that time, I just really loved going out with my friends every weekend. I loved meeting new friends. I loved just being very social. Um, I would be super excited every week to go to like the Friday night football games, the high school football games, and just hang out downtown and just going out to eat a lot. Um, and just being out with my friends, um, just like your typical teenager who loves, you know, making friends and loves being out, um, just really made me happy. Um, and I also had the worst diet known to man. (laughs) I was eating like for my lunch, I literally was eating candy and cookies and um, sometimes like curly fries, that would be my lunch. And then I'd come home and be starving because I didn't have anything nutritious. And I would just eat more sugar, um, frozen dinners, um, all the crazy, crazy sugary foods I could find. Um, So my social life was thriving back in high school. Um, My diet, not so much. But um, yeah, that was really my life before Lyme. It's, um, been a, it's been a long time. It's been almost 10 years now. So how old were you when you first started to get sick? Um, I was about 17 years old. 17. So you were pretty young. Yeah. And describe when you first got sick. What were your symptoms? And if you have like any specific dates to relate that to. 
Um, it was back in 2013. So it was really like in my senior year of high school. Um, I kept getting uh, reoccurring infections. I would get uh, UTIs almost monthly. Um, and this was going on for like four years and they never really figured out why I was getting UTIs all the time. So I was just got, uh, put on antibiotics for four years, <laughs> almost monthly. Um, so then obviously once I started taking antibiotics uh, a lot, I started getting more stomach aches. Um, I was constantly tired. I was becoming very unmotivated. I even quit my sports just because I just felt like all the energy I really had was to lay around. Um, so I really didn't have much energy. Um, and then I just remember having like started getting like anxiety attacks where I thought I was getting sick, um, physically ill when I was like in a really stressful situation. Um, this was around 2014 now. And then um, my stomach aches just continued to worsen and they stuck around more consistently, which is when like other symptoms started to pop up, which was more after or around college. So 2017 to 2018, um, I was getting the consistent stomach aches, brain fog, um, very fatigued all the time and just... Um, I couldn't really figure out what was going on. <laughs> so you said you were in college. What were you studying in college? What were you working on? So I went to school for entrepreneurship and marketing. And um, yeah, I just really fell in love with the whole business world. I wasn't a big numbers person. So I got into more of like the marketing and the creative side and um, really enjoyed that. That's really awesome. Um, Rich, did you want to ask her anything else about more details about how she got started or what she was doing? Yes. So, Sarah, why don't you talk to us a little bit about, about how you're developing symptoms or interfering with your educational pursuits and your personal pursuits at the time that your symptoms first developed? So, um, my symptoms, again, uh, way early back, I, um, had quit sports and I stopped making plans with friends because I didn't know if I was going to be sick. <laughs> um, so it was really hard for me to make plans, um, especially in the future. Like if people were like, Hey, you want to hang out next weekend? I started getting kind of anxious about it. Like, I don't know. We'll see. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to feel sick or not. Cause I felt bad when I always had to kind of bail on people and I felt, um, I guess kind of misunderstood. Cause I would, you know, when you tell people like so many times, like, Oh, I just don't feel good or I can't hang out. I don't feel good. People kind of start to get like, you know, you're sick all the time. What, you know, is this just an excuse, you know? So um, my social life, it was starting to kind of plummet just because again, I just, it was hard for me to keep plans, make plans. Um, I stopped really going out of my way to make plans and make friends. Um, and then as far as just education, studying was really hard <laughs> for me. I felt like uh, the fatigue, just like I, I would start studying and just like doze off and I just couldn't stay awake. And then of course, when it's actually time for bed, I couldn't fall asleep at all. Um, didn't really sleep throughout the night. 
and then just the brain fog. So during tests, actual exams, it was really difficult for me to remember everything that I was studying. And I just felt like I like would blank out and just kind of get foggy and just not remember. Um, it wasn't through college. It wasn't as bad. I was able to just kind of get through it. It was more kind of like, um, I just don't feel well. It wasn't at a point where it's like, I need to see a doctor. There's something wrong. I kind of felt like that was the norm. Um, and this was all before I really started changing my whole diet and, um, drinking water <laughs> at all <laughs> to hydrate myself. Um, so yeah, I guess during all of that, the, um, keeping relationships, building new relationships, um, and trying to stay focused in my studies was starting to get very, very difficult. So initially you went from being this social gal who made a lot of plans who ate like crap, um, <laughs> and, and who, um, and who was an athlete and a good student to now starting to now have a lot of that taken away from you. You lost your social circle in part because you were no longer an athlete. So you weren't playing on the teams you had been playing on before. You couldn't go out on a regular basis and eat all the bad food you were eating because you felt uncomfortable with letting your friends down by, by not being able to keep the plans that you were making. And now educationally, you were struggling because you couldn't put your attention or focus on the work that you had been doing. And now you were starting to struggle there. So now talk to us about what was going on with your family. How were your, your family members reacting to A, the changes in Sarah, and B, the changes that were going on with you now no longer being an athlete, no longer being a social butterfly, and no longer uh, having the success in school that she was having before that? Well, I am really lucky to have a very supportive family. They, it, it always started as like, oh, you know, you just have a sensitive stomach, and that's kind of what I believe. Like, I'm just, I just have a sensitive stomach, you know, I'm, I'm fine. Um, and then once it started to worsen and started to be very uh, continuous, um, they, I was always able to talk to my family about it and just talk to them. Like, you know, I just, I don't feel good. I don't know what's going on. Um, so they were always there with me and helping me to find a doctor or, um, you know, checking in, how are you doing? How have you been feeling? Is this working? um, what's going on. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've had a very, very supportive, um, and understanding family. So let's talk about your brain, right? We have a binary brain where we will either be in fight or flight or rest and digest. Right. And of course, as we're under stress and as we have these things happen to us, we find ourselves spending more time in the fight or flight region of our binary brain rather than in this rest and digest. So as all of these things were happening to you, what was your brain telling you? about why you were not able to be an athlete anymore. You weren't able to be social anymore. You weren't able to, you weren't able to focus on, on your educational responsibilities. What was your brain telling you? Um, at the beginning, it was really just, um, you're just really tired. <laughs> and like, I just like felt that that was kind of the person I was like, just a very low I guess, low key, very chill, like super tired person. Um, and then when it, I did end up seeing a couple, just my primary care doctors and just, you know, giving them my symptoms and, um, 
they would tell me just different things like, oh, you need to eat more fiber or, you know, everything's fine. We don't really see anything wrong. Um, that's when my brain really started telling me like, no, there's, there's something going on and we need to figure it out because I wasn't, I wasn't gonna live my entire life like this. I just, it just wasn't acceptable for me. I just couldn't, couldn't do it. So I definitely got to a point where my, my brain was telling me like, we're, we need to keep going and, and figure out what this is. Okay. So on this podcast, we always talk about signals and body signals. And sometimes we listen to the signals. Sometimes we don't listen to the signals. Sometimes we believe our signals. Sometimes we don't believe our signals. Was there ever a time when you were on this journey where your body was signaling to you that you were sick and you were thinking, no, I'm, I'm not really sick. I'm, you know, I'm making this up or I'm really okay. Or I can do this. And what well, were you ever getting any of those kinds of signals, which you were either ignoring or, or disagreeing with? Um, not as much as like, there's like something wrong, but I'm okay. There were times where I would like, you know, again, I would just kind of tell myself like, this is just like normal, um, how I was feeling. But when it started getting worse and more consistent, I got into more of a fight or flight state of mind where I always thought I was sick or I always thought like there's something seriously wrong, even when there wasn't. Um, so I guess more of the opposite where my, my body would tell me that I, or, you know, I am okay, but then I'd start kind of talking myself like into it almost like, okay, I don't feel this good for this long. Something's going to happen soon. And you just kind of start talking yourself into a whole anxiety. <laughs> so, you, so you get into this loop where you're in fight or flight all the time, as opposed to having a binary brain, you now have a fight or flight brain. And the only thing you're doing is fighting, fleeing, um, freezing, fainting, or fawning, right? There's only five things you can do when you're in that portion of your brain. And now, unfortunately, we also know that physiologically you can't heal because if you're not in rest and digest, your, your, your body cannot heal. So now you're in the spiral of just being sick and being sick and being sick, right? Now, before we get into the doctors, and Ashley's going to talk to you about the doctors you saw and how that went, I want to talk to you about one more thing. Uh, and that is, um, do you remember being bitten by a tick? prior to uh, prior to feeling the symptoms that you began to feel when you were 17. And of course, that continued to develop until you were diagnosed at 25. No, I actually have never even seen a tick on me because bugs freak me out. <laughs> I hate bugs. So if there's like anything around me, I'm like running away. Um, so I feel like I would like know that I, the tick was on me. But there's also, I mean, doctors and people have told me, you know, while you're sleeping, it could have bit you and walked off and you didn't know. I, I mean, again, I grew up in Michigan. We did a lot of camping. We were huge campers. So I'm always out in the woods. Um, so there could have been a time where I got bit and I didn't know, but I, yeah, I've never, I've never even noticed a tick biting me. Well, did you know anything about ticks? You said you were a camper and your family, your family was outdoorsy. Um, were ticks something that you were warned to be careful about and to check for, or was it just something that you were oblivious to until you got your diagnosis? I, it was more like, I never really thought about Lyme disease at all. Um, I guess I'd always hear about it, like being in like deer, but I never like really heard about it in in humans and what it really did it was almost like a rare thing to me just because I wasn't even in, I wasn't in this community at all so I had no idea um 
So yeah, it was more just, you know, they're just gross and I don't want them around me like spiders, you know, I don't like, you know, the bugs and stuff. It was more right. just like, and, and I've seen like people like, um, around they'll, they'll have a tick on them and they just, you know, take it off of them. And it was just like, go about your day. So I never really knew the effects that this would have. So you, you were generally aware of ticks and you recall people in your social circles having ticks on them and, and, and removing them, but you didn't have any educational information either from school and health classes or from parents and people that you were camping with that suggested to you that this was something that could make you sick and that you should be checking for ticks and you should be properly removing them and, and taking early intervention steps so that you wouldn't get sick if you found it on you. Yeah, no, I, I never knew. I haven't learned anything about it. And of course, part of the problem is that ticks are really sophisticated at hiding, right? And 80% of the people who have Lyme disease have never found a tick on them, right? So there are other ways that you can get Lyme disease. You could get it congenitally. There is some question about whether or not it can be sexually transmitted. And there, there is a debate in the community about that. So let's, let's explore that for a second. Um, do you think anyone else in your family has Lyme disease? And do you think it's possible that your parents could have transmitted it to you in utero? Um, I, it's hard to say because, um, no one's ever been tested except for me just, and it was just because I fell across a doctor and explained my symptoms, but, um, what yeah, about, do you know, like one of the things we see in the community, Sarah, is we get really good at seeing Lyme disease. In fact, what we find with most of our podcasts is that people are actually diagnosed by another person with Lyme disease in the community before they're diagnosed by a doctor. Very, very common, like maybe 90% of the cases where somebody's sick and they're going to doctor after doctor after doctor, um, and then they bump into someone and says, by the way, that looks like Lyme disease, right? I'm sure you're now you're now a super diagnoser as well, right? Do you see anything in either of your parents that would lead you to believe, not that, they have, not that they've been tested, but anything that leads you to believe that perhaps one or both of them have Lyme disease? Um, no, surprisingly not. Um... I, I see it a lot in my community. A lot of people like will uh, message me and kind of tell me all these symptoms and they don't know what's going on. And I, and I do, you know, do that where I'm like, that definitely sounds like lying. You should get tested. Um, or just even like friends or um, like, you know, my boyfriend's family, stuff like that. But yeah, for, for my fam my family, um, my parents and stuff does not, they don't seem to have any type of symptom that would make me think that it could be lying. So you believe it's likely that you were bitten by a tick, right? You don't think it was it was passed on congenitally. Um, and you likely got bitten by a tick and you never found the tick, which is, of course, I think the most common way that people get Lyme disease, right? They get bitten by a tick and they, they're not aware of it because ticks are really good at hiding, right? They're really small. They move in a way that we don't feel them. They have, uh, you know, they have um, special proteins in their spit, which make it so that when they, when they, uh, when they bite you, you don't feel it. And, and they have immunosuppressive, um, you know, proteins in the spit. So your immune system doesn't respond to it. And they just, they're just sucking and spitting and sucking and spitting. As it turns out, in most cases, um, people have ticks on them for three or four days before they even notice it when they do notice it, right? So it's on you for a long time and you just never find it unless of course you're checking, which is why the educational piece of this is so, so important, uh, but you weren't checking, right? And in fact, you probably didn't even know how to check. Yeah, no, we just 
would sleep in the woods and <laughs> we wouldn't be checking for ticks. Sarah, I wanted to say I can relate to so many things that you're saying right now. If I had a dollar for every time a doctor told me to eat more fiber, <laughs> that's the answer <laughs> to all my problems. I'd be rich. Um, I did want to go back and um, just confirm. So you said your symptoms started you when you were 17. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And so how old were you when you got diagnosed with Lyme disease? I was um, about... I think 25. It's been about two years now. Okay. And how many doctors did you have to see before you got that diagnosis of Lyme disease? I've kind of, I've lost count, but I want to say about 10 different doctors and specialists. Cause I started with just the primary care doctors and then they started referring me to all these different specialists and then a specialist would refer me to another specialist. <laughs> so I think it's been, I think it was about 10 different doctors. Okay. And how, what were your symptoms that you had that you're presenting to the doctors? What symptoms are you bringing to the office that you're telling them that you're going through? And then what are they telling you your diagnosis is? In the beginning, it was mainly my, well, my main concern was my stomach. Um, I think now looking back on it, my uh, stomach issues kind of masked all my other issues. So in the beginning, I was just talking to different doctors about, you know, I've, I've got stomach aches and it's consistent. And that's when my first primary care doctor just um, told me I need to eat more fiber so I did do that. And then I actually started drinking a lot more water um, because before this, all I drank was pop um, or soda. <laughs> People always laugh at me when I call it pop, but um, pop. Okay, California, we call it soda. And I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Living pop. out here in Arizona, I say pop and people are like, oh, okay. That's not what we say, but <laughs> um, so yeah, I was only drinking pop um, and so I started drinking more water. I started eating more fiber. Um, and that's actually kind of when I found out my UTIs stopped, I was drinking water. I just, I was just dehydrated all the time and nobody was able to even just tell me that. Um, so, but my stomach issues weren't going away. So I, um, went back to the doctor and they were doing blood work um, and they just did your, your basic, very quick blood work. Like, uh, you know, they checked your vitamin, my vitamin D and stuff like that. And they didn't see anything wrong. So they said, I'm fine, but I just, I wasn't getting better. And I just was like, I'm not going to live like this. So I just kept looking for answers. So I went to different doctors and I ended up seeing a gastro gastroenterologist, um, or GI specialist. And she, did everything that she could. Um, I, I truly believe that they, they do try to do everything that they are taught to do. And she did all the procedures. Um, I had an endoscopy done and then I had a colonoscopy done and, um, they couldn't find anything. I, like everything was great and normal. Like I would, just, I would get my lab results back and it would just be like, everything is optimal and looks great. And I'm just like, so confused. Cause I'm like, there's, definitely something wrong. Why can't they see it? Why can't they find it? Um, so that's when they, she told me that, um, you know, they didn't see anything visibly wrong. So 
everything. So they kind of opt out everything else like celiacs, um, leaky gut, stuff like that. And so they just counted it as IBS. Um, so then she sent me to a behavioral therapist um, who gave me antidepressants that were supposed to also kind of help the IBS, which it wasn't IBS, but um, I, I did take it and I actually got way worse. It like hurt my stomach. I got really sick on it, on the medication. Um, so I knew that wasn't the problem and I stopped taking it right away. And then I saw a nutritionist who put me on just all these elimination diets. I did the low FODMAP diet, um, which is very, very, very restrictive. And you're only supposed to really be on it for like 30 days. And I wasn't getting any better. So they just were like, all right, just stay on it or just stay on it, just stay on it. So I was on it for like six months. And at the time I started losing a lot of weight and I'm not a very big person to begin with. I'm, I started at about 118 pounds and I went down to 105 pounds um, just because I couldn't eat. And then also being on a restrictive diet, I wasn't able to really eat much of anything at all. So when that wasn't working, I kind of just stopped seeing her and I, and I kind of just gave up for a while. Um, and then that's when we ended up moving to Arizona. And that's kind of when I started to dive into health myself. So I, again, I have no idea. I don't know anything about Lyme disease at this point. I never was taught about it or, you know, we didn't really talk much about it. Um, so I started just really diving into health books overall. So I started learning about gut health and the gut and brain connection and nutrition and what food does for our body. And I just was learning all of these things and totally transforming my diet from, I mean, I literally used to come home and eat spoonfuls of brown sugar. Like it's disgusting thinking about it now, but I just was like so addicted to sugar. I would just eat it. And now um, I've transformed it into just, you know, I eat lots of plant rich foods and I eat, you know, healthy proteins and I stay away from sugar. I drink tons of water, um, stuff like that, but I still wasn't fully getting better. So then I started getting frustrated because I'm like completely changing my diet and I've just, I've done everything that everybody's told me and everybody has suggested and doctors have told me it's not working. So, um, I, uh, when I got a job out here, um, there was a coworker that I was explaining my symptoms. And again, it was mostly the stomach symptoms. And then he kind of asked me more about like, well, um, you know, how are you feeling mentally and stuff like that? So I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm like really tired all the time, but I never really thought about it. Um, you know, the brain fog, I didn't really even know what brain fog was <laughs> until I discovered Lyme. I just, again, to me, I just thought that was just who I was. Um, so that's when he referred me to his doctor because he was diagnosed with Lyme disease. And when he first said it, he was like, I was, you know, I had Lyme disease and this is what it sounds like. And you should see this doctor. And I was like, no, I have stomach issues. This isn't, this isn't Lyme disease. I don't, this is, I don't know what that is. Like, you know, this is totally different. And I just did not believe it at all. So I saw this doctor and um, told him my symptoms. And he asked me about different symptoms again, that I never really thought about. Um, and that's when we did different tests. And when he couldn't really figure out what was going on either, he, he, will, he then was like, okay, I want to test you for Lyme disease. And 
they did and it came out positive. So you now have a Lyme disease diagnosis. Yes. <laughs> you have an answer to all the health questions that you had before, right? You've been on this battle for now seven years, right? Or eight years. How does it feel to finally have a diagnosis? It was scary at first. Um, I always had thought like getting, you know, I've always like been like, I want a diagnosis because I need to find answers. And when he did give me that, I, I had a lot of questions and it was scary. But then I started feeling kind of relieved because I'm like, okay, well, you know, help me, <laughs> fix me now. And then let me know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, we, hear, we hear that description from a lot of people is this euphoria where you are excited that you're now going to be able to solve your problems because you know, have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Take a couple of pills, you're going to get better, right? So how'd that work out for you, Sarah? How did that, how did that euphoria um, either help or hurt you as you're now going on this journey? Um, so it did start off again. I was very excited. I had lots of questions and I was willing to go through a lot of pain to get to healing. Cause I know treatment is, um, not always the easiest, but okay, I was pause that for a second. I, I, I didn't need to interrupt you. So that's, so why did you think this was going to be a painful experience? So, so you walked into this thinking, Hey, I'm going to go through hell and I'm willing to do that. Why did you think that? Um, because, I mean, I had a lot of, I guess, previously with all the other like misdiagnoses I've gotten in the past, I've had to go through a lot of very difficult, um, I don't want to say treatments because I didn't, it wasn't like a treatment, but like the, you know, the um, restrictive diets and the medications that really hurt me. Um, I just kind of figured that that was going to be the case again. <laughs> so you, you'd been, you'd been through hell already. So you knew that um, you might have to continue to go through hell in order to be able to get to the other side and get better. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how did you feel about all the doctors you had seen before you saw at least 10 doctors, probably more prior to getting this diagnosis. And as we, as I had predicted during the early part of the podcast, you were actually diagnosed by a fellow Lyme, not mm -hmm. by a doctor. How'd you feel about all those doctors who weren't able to diagnose you and a person who was actually um, going through the, uh, the battle with Lyme disease was able to diagnose you? Um, it, I did get very frustrated a lot. And I, there were a lot of times I felt unheard or just kind of like another number, um, like another patient. And I started talking to other people who had similar issues and they were doing they were going through the exact same thing, the exact same procedures, and they would say the same thing where it's like, you know, they couldn't find anything. So they just kind of like moved me on to someone else. Um, but I also am very, very grateful for the doctors that I had access to see. I got to, you know, I saw my gastroenterologist, my GI. <laughs> um, she was at uh, University of Michigan Medicine and just having that access um, and resources, I was very grateful. And they were able to test that, you know, I didn't have cancer or I didn't have celiac disease. So. Well, but you didn't I have agree. any of those diseases. You didn't have any of those. So it's yeah. the thing, you know, they tested and found that you didn't have, but they didn't find what you did have. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so I wonder, you know, again, with younger folks, you know, doctors are the most revered or respected people in my community, you know, that there's a doctor, he or she is wonderful. Uh, you know, they're, they're really smart. Uh, and, and in the culture that I come from, um, my mother's Italian, you certainly respect the doctors. Did you have that sort of 
built into you? And did you feel differently about the respect that you were encouraged to have for doctors um, after you went through this seven or eight year journey where uh, they didn't diagnose what you had? Yeah, I, 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 I grew up same thing where, you know, I just, I respected doctors and I always grew up where it's like, if you're sick, you go to the doctor and they make you better. Um, but then after several years of no one making me better, I, I didn't lose the respect. Um, but I did learn that I need more than one opinion. And I did learn that, you know, this doctor might not be able to help me and, you know, they have, they know what they know. And if they can't figure it out, I need to find another opinion. So, yeah. So sorry. And, and I wouldn't expect them. Uh, a nice young woman like you to be disrespectful, but was the illusion gone for you now? Because it, the way I describe it is I was under the illusion that there were these really special people who had these special powers who would make me better the minute I walked in, right? It's an illusion. It's false, right? So did the illusion now leave and are you now looking at the medical community differently? And if so, how is that guiding you when you're taking your next steps? Uh, definitely. Yeah. The illusion. Um, I mean, same thing. I, again, I, I would, I always believed you go to a doctor and they can make you better. Um, and knowing what I know now, I've just started to learn that a lot of our Western medicine is heavily prescribed and heavily just masking symptoms. It's not very proactive as far as, or preventative. Um, and, instead of digging to find like, what is the root cause of my problems? They just kind of give you a pill and you take it and then you take the pill and it gives you other symptoms. So you got to take another pill and then that pill gives you some other symptoms and you got to take another pill. So I started losing a lot of trust, um, in the pharmaceuticals definitely. Um, and just the overprescription in Western medicine. And I, I do, I did start to believe that I, I feel like they need to learn. They need to be taught more about preventative and even holistic natural medic medicine because our bodies are not supposed to be living on medication it's not like a natural thing it's a good band-aid but you need to find the root cause so I did definitely lose that illusion of of that <laughs> so so but the other the other piece of this is not only do they have to learn to have better capacity to diagnose and treat us, but they also have to learn how to be more respectful of us, right? Because although, although, the, um, although I complimented you a moment ago for still being respectful of the hard work and capacity of medical professionals, and we should still respect that, uh, we, we certainly have to, we have to stop being deluded and we have to have a healthy relationship with doctors. But the only way we can have a healthy relationship with doctors is first, if we define what we want that relationship to be, and secondly, if they're open to having that relationship. So talk to me about what you started to see as you started out on your Lyme disease journey. Were you defining the relationship that you wanted with doctors differently? And were the doctors now open to having that type of a healthy partnership with you? Um, sorry, my, my cat came in and distracted me. Can you ask that again? Yes, that's okay. Yes. So we have many cats and many dogs uh, <laughs> participating in this, uh, in this podcast. So, so what I'm asking you is, you now have now the delusion of the superheroes with superpowers being able to make you better is gone, right? You're still going to be respectful of doctors. You still believe that doctors can be helpful, but you now have to have a different relationship with these people, right? 
But in order to be able to have a healthy relationship with these people, you first have to define what you want the relationship to be because the delusion is now gone. And they have to be open to having a different relationship that they traditionally have with patients. So now are you now, Sarah, now defining your relationship with doctors differently? And are these doctors, as you're beginning the post-Lyme diagnosis portion of your journey, are they open to having a different relationship with you than you've had with any doctor in the past? Yeah, I've, I've definitely, I mean, I've really noticed, um, the traditional doctors. I've, I've had a lot of great doctors. Um, you know, they would listen and I want to believe they had, they felt empathetic. Um, but I also had a lot of doctors that would almost gaslight my symptoms and just, I mean, again, they just sent me to a therapist and they were like, I guess, basically telling me it's all in your head or, you know, you're just kind of thinking yourself sick. Um, so, and that's what happened to you, right? I mean, you, you were sent, uh, when Ashley was asking you about the different doctors you saw, you were sent to a behavioral therapist, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You were given, you were given medication for a mental health disorder, correct? Yes. And the IBS. Yeah. So how, well, it made your IBS worse, right? So, so let's, so clearly your doctors are saying to you, there's nothing physically wrong with you. It's in your head. So let's send you to a doctor who can give you behavioral therapy and let's send you to a doctor who can give you medication that can help you resolve what's in your head that's making you sick, right? Yep. And I, it was like almost out of pocket too. So I couldn't afford it. And... Oh, but, but Sarah, you knew you weren't, you knew you weren't mentally ill. You knew yeah. that you were physically sick. You said the signal kept telling you that there was something wrong with you, but being the compliant patient that you are, you followed the path that they had given you. You went to see the doctor they wanted you to see. You took the medication that you wanted them to take and it made you sicker. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So what impact did that have on you emotionally? Right. You were, you were, you were you were gaslit, right? You were told there's nothing wrong with you. You have to go see uh, you have to go see someone to to work with your behavioral challenges or your mental health challenges. What impact did that have on you when your body was telling you that you were sick, but your doctors were telling you no that you're mentally ill? Uh, it was it was very tough. I, I got there were um, several points in my in that time in my life where I just wanted to give up and just kind of accept it and live like this. I guess. Um, and there was another part of me that just didn't want to give up. And there, I um, had made other appointments because I, I always had, whenever I talk about it, I would always have friends telling me like, oh, you should see this doctor or this doctor helped me completely and you should see this doctor. So I always had a lot of referrals. Um, and I, again, just from being like gaslit in the back or in before, and not having any diagnosis ever. And it, I mean, at this point, it's been like five, six years. Um, there have there were many times where I just wanted to give up and just quit. But I would talk to um, my boyfriend or my family and just kind of get that um, motivation back to see the next doctor and just hope maybe this one will give me something. Um, so I did, I kept fighting. <laughs> so sorry, so that, now you have a diagnosis, right? So now, now you have now you have a supportive family and a supportive um, intimate partner who's encouraging you to continue to fight, and that's really helping you, right? And that's wonderful because that's an important part of sort of having this what we like to call the light support, right? But now let's talk about the dark side, right? So you've been gaslit, you've been told that it's all in your head, you've been misdiagnosed, but now you have a Lyme disease diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Now you're looking back and saying, all right, now I'm going to prove to all of them that they were wrong. I'm going to get better to show them that I was really sick. Talk about sort of the, because we, we like to talk about the dark motivation and the, and the, and the bright motivation, right? Or the light motivation. Any of that dark stuff where you're like, I'm going to prove them wrong. It was more um, to prove myself. It was more for myself um, because I just like, I just would think a lot about um, my future and just like think about like my wedding and just stuff like that. And just kind of think like, oh, like what if I'm sick on my wedding day? Like that would be the horrible thing. Or what if, you know, I have kids and I can't go to their, their sporting events because I'm so sick. Like I just like really always thought about my future and that made me very depressed. <laughs> and then I also, it just kind of motivated me to, keep fighting. So it was, it was more for myself, I would say. So let's talk about that phase, right? Because it's, look, in order to be able to heal, you have to have a vision for your future, right? But the mm -hmm. downside to having this vision for your future is because you're not there and you're not in the condition that you want to be in, that could trigger your, your, your binary brain back into fight or flight. But you seem to be able to manage that, right? Where you had this vision of a bright future, you were able to get back to focusing on your dreams so that you can continue to fight in the light, but you were able to not feel badly and not trigger yourself into, into the fight or flight phase of your brain, despite not being there. How'd you do that? Uh, well, I, I, there were a lot of times that I, I was like, trying to give up. I, I just give up looking for answers when I say give up. Um, yeah. So I, I, um, there were a lot of times where I just was laying in bed. I would just lay in bed and just be kind of depressed and dark. I guess that's the dark days where it's just like, I'm never going to get better. This is never gonna, never going to happen. I don't know why I keep looking. I'm spending so much money and it's, it's just not going to happen. Um, but again, I'm, I'm very grateful for the support I have. And that's why I made that my Instagram community, because a lot of people don't have that support with their friends, family, loved ones. And I want um, you to hold on to that because we're going to get to yeah. that in a bit, but let, let's stay focused on now where you were, right? Because one of the things that I've already seen starting to develop in Sarah is Sarah was falling in love with the process, Right. Because if we look at the end goal and we have to have a goal, we have to see ourselves there. We have to recognize that that person is waiting for us to get there. And that person is waiting for you to get there. The person who is going to be healthy on her, you know, uh, taking care of her children. The person who is going to be healthy when she, when she got married. The person who is going to be doing all the work in the, in, in the entrepreneurial community that you had been dreaming about since you were a child. That person's there waiting for you, right? But you're mm -hmm. not there yet right? You haven't been able to get there yet. And now you're working toward that. And what I see from when you were talking with Ashley earlier is you began to fall in love with the process, right? And there were a lot of things that interfered with the process, misdiagnosis, gaslighting, all these kinds of things. But what did you do? You started to focus on changing your diet, right? And you saw that was having a positive impact on the outcome. So instead of going home and take a mouthful of sugar, which by the way, was feeding your, your, your germs, right? And we know, know. that was happening, right? <laughs> Instead of just laying in bed, which is, of course, what the bugs want you to do, because movement is something that's important so that you can detox, right? You start to fall in love with the process even before you had a diagnosis, right? And, okay. and, and so you made the changes in your diet and you got a little bit better, but it wasn't where you wanted to be. It wasn't that person that's going to be the, you know, the person that's waiting for you to get there, right? Um, 
but you you took the next step. Then you kept you kept working and working, and and then you then you had the blessing of coming in contact with somebody who was competent to diagnose you with Lyme, somebody who had Lyme disease, and you took the next step, right? So now talk about how things were different when you went to see a Lyme literate doctor as opposed to the people that you saw before. Uh, this I, I felt way more heard this time because um, we did a lot of tests like I would tell him my symptoms and then he would be like all right let's try this um treatment or this approach and see how you feel so I try it and I don't feel better I go back to him and he's like all right that didn't work so let's try something else whereas before the doctors would be like all right well that didn't work so I don't know you know they just kind of whatever so well let's focus on that because you said you felt heard right and that's one of the big things that I think is a problem with uh doctors who are not Lyme literate doctors right in most cases, what we hear from our guests is the doctors are telling you how you feel or how you should be feeling, as opposed to doctors asking you how you do feel and how we use that as a way of pivoting. So was that a difference in your experience and how did that change um, your feeling about the signals that you receive and how you're going to interact with your doctor? Yeah, um, it, it made me more excited because I guess more optimistic because I feel like this doctor was going to find the answers for me. Like if this wasn't the answer, we're going to find it. And we're just going to keep digging and digging and digging. And, um, and we did, and we're, we're still working on, on it, but. Well, but you and your doctor, were going to find the answers together, right? I mean, isn't that really yeah. the change in mindset that the doctor now values your input. The doctor now wants to, you know, because the, the real problem with, with Western medicine is there are a limited number of tests that they can give us. They give us those tests, and if they don't give us a result, then they just look at some symptom that we may or may not have been even given them an opportunity to completely describe to them, and then we walk out with some medicine that may or may not work, and in most cases, it doesn't work, right? Whereas what we see, you know, one of the big differences that we see with Lyme literate doctors is, first, they take more time to talk to us, right? Second, they're listening to us in a way where they're valuing the input that we're giving because they know the best test, the best information comes from us, as opposed to a blood test or a urine test or whatever other kind of test they can give us, right? That stuff is never going to be as good as the signals your body's giving to you, which they can help you to interpret. Is that what was happening with you now? You have somebody who's now really listening to the onboard testing system that's much better than those other things that they give us? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I completely agree when you say um, we're, you know, traditional doctors kind of tell you how you feel or how you should feel. Cause I have been told, you know, you're too young to feel like that. Or I don't understand what, what, how, what you're talking about. What does that mean? Or whenever I try to explain my symptoms um, where, yeah, as, as the Lyme literate doctor listened more and just wanted to actually hear and he understood and, and he had a lot of patients, go, excuse me, going through the same things. So he understood. He's like, you know, I get it. And he, he was really listening to me. So isn't the real problem of gaslighting what you saw, which was you start to lose faith in your signals, right? The onboard system of tests starts to be something that we don't rely on anymore because the experts, the people we respect, the people we're, we were deluded into believing are, you know, these wonderful people who have superpowers and can make us better are now telling us that our onboard system is not working. Right. And we stopped, we stopped believing in it. And is that what was happening with you until you finally found a doctor that valued and empowered your, um, your feelings? 
Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's funny you say that because when I would see these, um, the other doctors, it was, um, again, they just, they mis- misdiagnosed me with IBS and just behavioral mental, you know, antidepressant depression and stuff like that. And, um, having just a lot of like food sensitivities, just stuff that was more just like, you know, this is what's wrong, but we don't know why. And I kind of would take that and just go on about it. And I remember my dad asking me like, well, I will, but I don't understand why are you feeling like this? Like, why are you like going through this? But like, like you can't eat that, but I can, what's going on. And I'm like, I don't know. That's just how my body is. And I didn't understand that there's a root problem here. <laughs> and you weren't allowed to understand that there's a root problem because your doctors were telling you you're too young to feel this way or whatever it happens to be. Right. I mean, we, one of the things we hear all the time that, you know, drives us bats on this podcast is like, you're too pretty to feel that way. Like, what does that have to do with the pricey in China? The, you know, how I look. I mean, what does that have to do with how I feel? Right. But we hear all the time, you're too young and pretty to feel that way. How can that come out of your mouth? Yeah. So tell me, you've probably heard that too, right? To your doctor's appointments and you try to look as terrible as possible. So <laughs> don't say that to you. <laughs> yeah. Put the pale, put pale makeup on. Yes. <laughs> look at my dark circles. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, now talk to us about the first treatment that your Lyme literate doctor gave you and did the doctor give you an outline of what the process would be? Uh, yeah, so for the treatment for Lyme, he put me on the, I believe it's pronounced Coden protocol or Cowden protocol. Cowden, yes. Cowden, um, and it, it's the all the 20 different liquid tinctures that you gotta make your little, um, lime cocktail. <laughs> so now, was that the first thing you did, Sarah, or, or was there sort of a prehabilitation element of what you were doing before you started on the Cowden protocol? There was definitely um, a prehabilitation. So they, he had explained to me that I have to heal my gut first, because there was also something really going on with my gut and Lyme was obviously not helping it. So we discovered um, parasites and yeast and my whole gut microbiome was totally off balance. And a lot of it was probably because of the antibiotics that I was on for four years. Um, so we had focused on my gut first and I did take some medication for the yeast, which was really hard. It made, it made me sick, but, um, I just had to get through it. Cause I just kept telling myself, I'm going to I'm going to do this. Like, this is going to make me better. So I'm going to do I, it. Unfortunately, I have to ask you from detail on that. You say it was really hard. So the, what was the yeast causing you to feel? And then what was the protocol and what did it do to you? And remember there's, there's never too, there's never too much information on this podcast. We need all the details. Um, so I can't remember which medication it was called. I want to say it was antabuse, but it was to kill um, parasites and yeast and uh, when I say it was really hard, it made, I mean, I just, my, it made my stomach, like, I felt like I had the stomach flu, like every day, like it was just the die off was really hard. Um, so I felt very, very sick to my stomach. I couldn't go out. I was like very sick for a while. Was, um, it making you throw that up? I, was it making you throw up? Were you pooping? I mean, what was happening with this, with this treatment? Um, it, I, yeah, there were a few times where I would, uh, throw up and, a lot of it was mostly just stomach pain and I was able to not throw up. I probably shut up because I just felt so sick, but I hate the feeling of that. So, um, yeah, I, I, it just made me very, very sick. 
And um, I, uh, I did actually have to stop a few times because it was just very intense. Um, and we did try herbal, different herbal routes too. And those didn't quite help me. So um, we did no. that. First. So that was my first thing was clearing. No, sorry, you said you, you had lost a lot of weight. I mean, you're a small person to begin with, and you had lost a lot of weight. So where were you in the in your weight scale at that time? Were you at the lower end of the of the weight scale? Um, I so after the uh, nutritionist, after the elimination diet, it had been a few years, so I wasn't on any treatment or anything. So I was working on gaining my weight back. Okay. And I think at this point, I was at about 115 pounds, um, and I'm um, five foot seven. So it's still kind of underweight. Um, and it wasn't until I started the Cowden protocol that I did lose a lot of the weight. All right. So I want to say with the prehabilitation phase of this first, right? So the doctor give you, the doctor told you, hey, we have to deal with your stomach issues. We have to deal with the yeast. We have to deal with the parasites. Was there anything else that the doctor was encouraging you to do? Meaning, did you talk to the doctor about your diet? Did you talk to the doctor about your sleep? patterns and talk to the doctor about movement and exercise. I mean, was, were there any conversations about that during the prehabilitation phase of your treatment? Yes. Um, I'm glad you, you brought that up because I feel like I've gone through so many that I just like forget all the different little treatments that I would do. But um, so he did ask me about my sleep and I was telling him that I wasn't sleeping. I wouldn't stay asleep. So I'd wake up a lot throughout the night. Um, and then, so he gave me some supplements, um, phosphacetyl, phosphacetyl tearing. I don't know how to pronounce it, but something like that, um, to help me with sleep. And did that and, work? Yeah, that helped me stay asleep. And, and that was, that was helpful. It did take a few months. Um, but, and then I also was very, very low in all of my vitamins. So my iron, um, magnesium, vitamin C, vitamin D, literally everything, B12, everything was extremely low. Um, I don't know how that happened. There's a lot of different things that could have been, it could have been all the antibiotics. It could have been, um, different medications, something, even my diet previously, or, you know. or the, the bugs in your body. Yep. And the, yeah, they were probably just, um, living off of that. So I, I had to, uh, regain all that. And I had actually, instead of taking like a liquid vitamin, which was kind of harsh on my stomach. I had taken, or I, I would wear these, they were vitamin patches and it was, um, from a company called patch MD and, um, they, it kind of was like a nicotine patch where you like, you just stick it on your skin. And for like eight hours, it goes like the vitamins go straight to your bloodstream. So I did that for three months for like all of my vitamins and I had no symptoms like it or no side effects from it. So I really loved the patches and I always tell people when they're low on their vitamins, like, you know, wear these. Um, so I did, I was able to get all of my vitamins and nutrients back up. And then, um, I was regulating my sleep because he was saying that your gut health and your sleep is all very important and to getting ready to heal the Lyme. Like you have to heal that first before you can heal your Lyme. So Sarah, was anything else with sleep other than the supplement meaning where was the doctor recommending that you be intentional about the time you go to bed and the time that you wake up, uh, make any recommendations about resetting your circadian, uh, clock, anything like that. Um, a lot of that stuff I had taught myself. So I learned a lot about just like having a routine and cause we're very like habitual creatures. So having that night routine, turning off your electronics, I don't sit on my phone in my bed. 
Um, I don't like to have like the blue light before I go to bed. Um, I don't eat. I usually stop eating like six or 7 PM and I go to bed at like, uh, nine or 10. Sometimes there were nights where I was like trying to make it to nine. Um, I just fall asleep so early, but, um, yeah, so a lot of that was more self-taught. I, I learned a lot about just having that nightly routine and and the nutrients too. Okay, so you, you had already you had already built up a skill set with nutrition. So you were staying on the clean nutritional path, not eating all the sugar and greasy foods you were eating. You're now learning about how to set an intentional sleep schedule yourself and adding to that the supplements that your doctor was giving to you during the prehab phase. Uh, the doctor identified that you were low on particular vitamins and, and minerals, and you're now taking a patch and other types of supplements. What else are you now doing in conjunction with your doctor, either prompting you to learn some things or recommending that you uh, take certain steps during the prehabilitation phase of your, um, of your journey? Um, I mean, during all of this and the years after seeing my GI nutritionist, I, I took a lot of I self, I learned a lot on my own. So again, I was reading a lot of nutrition books, listening to a bunch of podcasts, going on the social media community and figuring out what other people are doing. Um, so yeah, I had learned that you just like, you have to like get rid of things that the virus can feed off of. So that would be, you know, getting rid of refined sugar because they, they feed off of sugar and, and they um, loved you. Yeah, no, they were loving me at that time. So that's that brown sugar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I definitely had to, had to clear all that out. So we were clearing, helping my sleep, um, getting my nutrients levels back up to optimal level. Um, I was eating as well and healthy as I could. And, um, Sarah, what about movement? You were an athlete before you got sick, right? And of course, one of the things we know that happens when we get sick from Lyme disease is the bugs don't want us to move. Uh, and they and they were they were successful in doing that, right? I mean, you were you were a prime candidate, full of sugar and now not moving, right? Did the doctor suggest that you had to start moving again? And did the doctor talk to you about the difference between exercising aggressively and exercising in a more passive way so you can get the movement, but it wouldn't be immunosuppressive? Yes. Yeah, so that was more while I was doing the Lyme treatment. So he had okay. actually warned me while I was doing Lyme treatment that I'm going to feel very, um, tired and it wasn't like the fatigue tired. It was like, I'd walk up the stairs and be out of breath kind of thing. And it was just cause my body was fighting this, this virus at the time. So he had warned me about that and he did, um, let me know to rest when I need to rest, but try to stay active in the sense of, you know, going for a walk, don't overdo it. He warned me, like, don't be lifting weights. Cause I, had the, I was lifting weights, trying to, you know, gain my weight back. So, um, he was just letting me know, like you should stay active, um, doing yoga. He recommended yoga, Pilates walks, um, anything light, um, just to keep movement, but so that was something that he recommended when you got to the kill phase of this, when you were killing the bugs, but not as part of the prehabilitation. He wasn't recommending that you go through any preparing yourself to detox before you started the kill. It was when you were doing the kill. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Anything else? I'll stay with the prehab for a minute. Anything else that your doctor gave to you or anything else you picked up through your now participation in the Lyme community where you were getting yourself ready to now kill these bugs and getting your body ready to deal with killing the bugs? 
Um, there was uh, one other thing that we had worked on. So I kept, I got tested a few times for my cortisol levels and um, they were extremely high and my estrogen and progesterone levels were all way off balance. Um, and at the time I was on birth control. So um, I was working with the Lyme literate doctor and then also um, he had a a coworker too that was more in women's health. So she was kind of telling me about like the birth control, the medication from birth control, what it's, it's probably, you know, it could deplete all of my nutrients and it's raising my cortisol levels. And, um, I, so that was another thing that we had to work on. So I was getting off of that and rebalancing my hormones. So I just had to literally rebalance everything. <laughs> so this is really important. Let's stay here for a second, right? So let's talk about cortisol and what your doctors told you about the cortisol and why that was a problem when you were in this prehabilitation phase of your treatment protocol. Yeah, so um, it kind of goes back into the flight or flight or fight or flight um, status where, yeah, you, you can't, your body it's hard for it to fight a virus when it's also trying to fight constant anxiety or high levels of cortisol, um, which also affected my sleep because cortisol levels would spike at like three or 4 a.m. So I'd always be waking up. Um, so it, 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 my body wasn't able to rest and fight what it needed to because it was constantly trying to fight off parasites. Um, it was in a constant anxiety state of mind and um everything was just off balance so it was it was very hard for it to actually focus on killing the virus so of course what's happening sarah is is that cortisol is going to trigger adrenaline adrenaline is going to trigger some to fight or flight right and one of the things that we've learned from dr bill rawls for example or dr dr mueller uh the hpa axis is of course the axis that's going to trigger us into fight or flight or rest of the digest and if we're in fight or flight we can't heal we simply can't heal and what was happening was your birth control pills are triggering uh, cortisol re release. And what's happening when our cortisol is being released on a regular basis, we almost become like diabetics where now the cortisol levels are not going to be, uh, are not going to be appropriate. We're going to get adrenaline, you know, streaming into our system all the time. And yes, we're going to be, we're going to be wired. We're going to be triggered, but more importantly, we're not going to be healing. Right. So that was a really important, um, you know, piece of information for your doctor to discover and to get, to get you in a place where your body can now heal and you can now have a more healthy um, flow of cortisol and um, and adrenaline. And they're both, by the way, very important. Uh, it's very important to have cortisol and it's, and it's very important to, you know, it, it's it's one of the, it's one, it, it's it wakes us up in the morning, right? And we know the level levels are higher. It's important to have adrenaline and it is important to have, you know, the ability to appropriately be in fight or flight. They are helpful to us, but you're in it all the time and you couldn't heal. That's really powerful. And, and, and for example, Matt and I both take what's called the HPA balance, which is from Rawls MD, which helps you to modulate your HPA axis so that you're going to be more healthy uh, and have a more healthy, um, um, more healthy uh, immune system. So, all right, so now we get your immune system straightened out. You're off the birth control. Your diet is straightened out. Uh, you're getting so, well, we didn't get to the movement yet. 
your um you know your gut is now being being uh being taken care of um did the doctor ask you to focus it all on your environment did the doctor say hey you you really want to find out whether or not you're living in a moldy environment and was there any conversation about mold during the prehabilitation phase of your um of your journey yeah so he did talk about um mold and toxins and just toxic environments and um, at that point, I was starting to kind of clear out a lot of my just daily like cleaners, household cleaners. Um, I now I have every a lot of my cleaners are non-toxic and I have a lot of there's a lot of really good brands out there that um, have that. Um, but the only thing is, is I wasn't really sure how because I was living in a in a in an apartment. So I wasn't really sure how to like test for Lyme and, or not Lyme, uh, mold. I wasn't sure how to like test for mold in the apartment. And I also wasn't sure about living in Arizona with it being so dry. I didn't know anything about mold. I know in Michigan with the humidity, there's mold, but, um, in an apartment in Arizona, I wasn't really sure. And I wasn't really sure how to detect that. Now your doctor talked to you about being concerned about toxins, right? Uh, and you start to move a lot of the chemicals out of the system, of course, because toxins, of, co of course, are immunosuppressive, right? I mean, we're living in this sort of really swimming in some people call it a toxic pool, right? So we need to pull as many of those toxins out so that our immune system is under less stress. Um, the doctor talked to you about social toxins and talked to you about the importance of making sure that you were detoxifying from any of the toxic people or any toxic activities you're engaging in, like too much time on social media. Yeah, he, he did talk to me about just uh, being in any stressful environment. So he did talk to me about my mindset and meditation. Um, I learned a lot about like belly breathing. Um, and I actually, at, recently, this was after my uh, Lyme treatment, I did like the uh, neurotherapy um, just for your brain and stuff like that. So he did talk to me about that. And with that, I started learning more about just what you, who you spend your time with, the music you listen to, the movies you watch, like if they're all very negative, you mentally can feel that. And, um, I didn't have toxic people in my life. Luckily, um, there were people like in the past that I just knew, like, you're just not a good person. And I just, you know, cut them off for my own, you know, so, you, just so you had, you had a good, you had a good social toxic trigger already. So that was something you didn't have to learn. You learned a lot of other things, but that was one you already had already in your toolbox, yeah. uh, which is, which is fantastic. So, um, so you said there was neural retraining. Uh, was there some specific protocol that the doctor was recommending during the prehabilitation phase? Um, no. So this was actually after, so this was this okay. past summer I did the, um, neurofeedback therapy. Okay. So we're going to get to that in a minute. So let's now, let's not talk about, so it sounds like we've gotten through it all. So we, we had, we had, you worked on your sleep, you worked on your diet, you worked on the chemical releases that the birth control pills were, were triggering. You, um, you had your vitamin patch. So you had, you were getting your vitamins and mineral levels up to an appropriate level. And you, and you were dealing with your gut issues, including dealing with the yeast and the parasites as a prehabilitation, right? Now let's talk about the kill. When did the kill start and how did it start? Was that the Cowden protocol? Yes. So I started with the Cowden protocol. Um, and this was two years ago back in, uh, I think about like now in October, 
Um, yeah, so um, I started that and it was a, it was, it was difficult. <laughs> yeah. But, so, so now, so, you know, you the kind of protocol, talk about what the protocol is, meaning you said there were, there were a lot of tinctures and, uh, and a lot of bottles. So let's talk about that first piece of it, because one of the things we hear from a lot of folks who have used the counter protocol is it's very effective, but it's onerous. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of bottles and a lot of times you have to take it. So talk about that piece of it and how you um, organize yourself in this phase, both both from an organizational standpoint, physically, and from an emotional organizational standpoint, to be ready to now kill these bugs in your body with all of these different bottles that you have to take. Yeah. So luckily at this point, I am uh, working from home. So just before this, I was working in an office and it would have been a lot more, would have taken a lot more organizational skills. So I was working at home um, and this was, yeah, so I was, I was working at home and the, so the, it was um, a few tinctures. I can't remember like how many total, but you would basically get this book that would tell you, you start off slow and you would take, so you would get, let's say 10 to 20 different tinctures and you would take three of them and do, you know, five drops of this, five drops of the other one, five drops of the other one, and then mix it with some water. Um, and you would do that with different tinctures throughout the day. I think it was three times a day, uh, morning, lunch, and then in the evening. Um, and then it would start to add up. So you had to do, eventually you had to do 20 drops of this one, 20 drops of this one, 20 drops of this one, 20 drops of this one. <laughs> and it was three times a day. And it was very like um, tedious because you have to like make sure you're counting the drops. And especially when you have brain fog, I would like lose count and just be like, oh, I don't know how many I have in here. So it was very tedious. And then the travel, traveling was very hard. So I didn't travel a ton at the time, but my family's still in Michigan. So we would go, let's say back to Michigan for Christmas, or we took a trip with my family to Florida and it's all liquid tinctures. <laughs> so going through the um, airport, they're all under three ounces. So I was able to put them in a bag and go through but they would always <laughs> question me like they'd lift this bag full of all these liquids and be like is this is this yours and I'm like yeah I'm sorry <laughs> like they have no idea what it is and I can't you know explain to them like I'm doing Lyme treatment because a lot of people aren't aware um so it was definitely the the process of it was tedious but um I was able to just stick with it I would set alarms on my phone and reminders, I guess, more so, and just let my, remind myself, like, take this now. And then, you know, you, I could even prepare it. If I'm doing it in the morning, I could prepare for the rest of the day. Um, Cause I think it could, it could last about 24 hours before you could drink it. So how long, how long were you on the Cowden protocol? I was on it for nine months. Okay. Now during that nine months, you said that you had some issues at different times where you had to come on and off of it. Um, what was going on that that made it so you had to come on and off? Were you were you herxing and it was too much, or what was what was happening there? So the Cadmium Protocol, I didn't have to come on and off of it. Okay. That was the uh, the yeast medication. Oh, okay. so so yeah. yeast you, you went on and off of. Talk to us about the Cadmium Protocol and were there any challenges? And is that when you first learned about what a herx is? Yeah, so that is uh, that is definitely when I learned what a herx was. Um, so for the first month, I was fine. I was doing all right. And then the next month I started just uh, getting tired. So again, I'd like walk up steps and just be out of breath um, or 
kind of like when you go to Colorado and you're like walking, it's like less oxygen where you're walking uphill and you just like feel so out of breath. You're like, you know, it's really weird. Um, so that was kind of the very beginning. So that's when I stopped uh, being able to really work out again. This is what he warned me. Um, but I would still walk and I would still try to go to the gym. <laughs> there were times I probably shouldn't have, but um, I just tried and my body would literally tell me like, you, you can't do this. So I just leave. Um, so then I think about three or four months in is when I got a, got really started herxing. I started getting uh, body aches, kind of like a flu-like symptom, um, but no fever. It was more just like the body. Ache. So that's kind of how I knew it was herx like instead of the flu. Um, so I was, um, kind of just going through that. I would be in bed and just kind of like tensing up, like aching. let me ask you about herxing. So, um, were you told by the doctor that you were going to herx and did the doctor describe for you what a herx was so that you knew that it was coming and did the description meet the, uh, what it was or, or was it different than you thought it was going to be based on the descriptions? Yep. My, my doctor, he told me what it, he told me it was going to happen. And he told me it was good that that was happening. Cause he said, that means it's killing the virus. Um, it means it's working. And so, um, in the beginning I was kind of, kind of excited that I was herxing. I'm like, yes, that means it's working. That means this is right. You know, I'm going to feel better. Um, then it got worse and worse. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. But, um, yeah, so he did warn me and it did match up to what he was saying. Um, there were times though, that it was almost, so this was around COVID. So, um, just before Christmas, I believe it was 2021, we were going to fly home to Michigan and I had a full blown perks, like the worst kind, like the worst it gets for me at least. And it was fever, chills, aches, like everything. And um, I didn't know if it was COVID. I didn't know if it was flu and I didn't know if it was, um, uh, hurts cause it all feels exactly the same. So, um, I had, I got tested for COVID and it was negative. So that's when I was like, okay, this is probably hurts. Um, and then also my boyfriend wasn't getting sick, so it wasn't contagious. Um, so I actually had to cancel my flight and reschedule it for a different day. Cause I was just I, at the time I thought it was COVID and I just was hurting so bad. I could, I wouldn't, I would probably faint if I walked through the airport. So now did the doctor give you any tools to manage the herx or to help you to reduce the effects of the herx? Yes. So, um, the cotton protocol had, um, it was called Berber Panella and it was, uh, one of the tinctures that you could take to help with the herx. Um, so there were a couple of times I had to take just some medicine to help with the fever, but the Berber helped with the aches and pains a lot. And then also heating pads helped a lot. Um, my boyfriend helped me with just like muscle massages a lot, but, um, yeah, the Berber helped me a lot. It was just a tincture that you would put 20 drops in water every 15 minutes as needed. And that's actually another indicator how I knew it was Herx because I was starting to feel better after taking that. And so that just, that told me it wasn't a, a flu. 
Was there anything else that the doctor gave you other than uh, other than the element of the Berber uh, Penelope from the Cowden protocol? Did, did the doctor suggest maybe you should back down a little bit on the amount of tinctures you were taking? Did the doctor say you should have more movement so you can detox a little bit more? Or was there anything else um, that the doctor recommended that you do so that you wouldn't be in so much pain with the herxing? Um, not really. I mean, it was more just the Berber, which helped a lot. Um, and again, I mean, he did warn me that it was going to be bad and he told me to get a hold of him if it was getting obviously worse and worse and worse and not getting any better. Like if it got to a toxic point, um, which it never did, at least I don't think I'm, I'm kind of a fighter. So like, <laughs> I have to be like basically dying for me to like go back to the doctor and be like, I'm not okay. So, um, I, I definitely, yeah, I just fought through it. And, and I, after a day it was, it was better. And then, you know, it would be kind of the waves. It wasn't a consistent, um, horrible pain. Yeah, so Sarah, one of the things that's making me a little anxious about, you know, the, the, the fighter mindset is that we've actually interviewed some folks on this podcast who have, who have treated a little too aggressively and it actually made them sicker, right? So that we, we sort of have to strike this balance between recognizing that yes, uh, when we're getting a herx, it's working and that's a positive thing. But if we're fighting too much and we're willing to, you know, we're willing to be in too much pain, actually that can actually hurt us. And we even have um, a couple of folks who've interviewed who, who were wheelchair bound because they fought too hard and they took too much. And, you know, they, they didn't have, you know, unfortunately um, a system that allowed them to detox. So, um, you know, we always want to sort of do that warning, you know, raise that warning flag when we, when we have a tough gal like you, who, um, who seem to be lucky enough to get through this without getting hurt worse, but we really do have to balance that Herx uh, because it can be, it can be harmful. So, so, uh, so now you finished the counter protocol, you have a really good outcome. What's the, were there any other steps in the kill phase of your treatment? What did you move into their rehab phase uh, right after the counter protocol? Um, oh no, you tried the, the cell phone, right? What was that? You, you used the cell phone, right? Yes, that was after the Cowden. So after nine months, um, we retested and it not, he, he explained to me that it knocked uh, some of the lime out, I think like 30% it knocked it out. Um, so he wanted to take a more aggressive approach and do the di disulfiram. So now how did, how did the doctor test you to determine that you were 30% better or there was 30% less of the bugs in your system? Um, so I, they diagnosed me through the Western blot test and he kind of explained it as like, he kind of was saying it's very difficult to remember, but he was saying that there's like, let's say like six proteins. And he said like two of them like broke down or whatever. Right. So, so of the six bands, you were down to four bands with the second test. Yeah. All right. And did he use any other testing other than the Western blot or he was relying purely on the Western blot? I believe it was just the Western blot. Okay. So now he recommends that you now try the sulfur and how'd that go for you? I did not last more than a few days on it. So um, he explained to me like the um, intensity of it. And I joined some Facebook groups of people that were also on it. And I just heard so uh, it, it felt like almost everybody was like having these success stories where, you know, it was really, really tough, but you know, their life has completely changed. Like Lyme is gone and they're, they're so much better. So I was so 
eager to do it. And he did tell me about um, the reaction to alcohol. So he actually explained to me that um, it was previously used um, for alcoholics and getting them. So when you drink alcohol while taking it, you get very, very sick. So it deters you from drinking alcohol. Um, but then during the research, they actually found that it kills Lyme disease. So, um, and it's very effective. So he explained to me about the alcohol, but then he also said, um, even like topical alcohol, cause I wasn't even drinking alcohol at this point. Cause I just, would get sick from it anyways. So he said, even like hand sanitizers, um, nail polish remover, like anything that contains alcohol, it will make you very, very sick. So he warned me of that. Um, however, I wasn't aware of how many things had alcohol in it. Like my body lotion had alcohol in it. My deodorant had alcohol in it. People were talking about their mascara, um, you know, things that you use every day that you have no mouthwash even. Um, so I didn't realize, I mean, I even tried to purge everything I got. I spent like $15 on a deodorant <laughs> and, you know, I got like shea butter instead of my, my, you know, uh, body lotion, my typical body lotion. I just used shea butter. Um, so I was like purging everything. And even then I, I had alcohol in something. I don't even know. And I know some people react a lot more worse than others. And I was one of those, one of those people. So I ended up, um, I took it for a couple of days and then there was one night I woke up and had an extreme panic attack, which I've never had before, where I just shortness of breath, freaking out, and then just felt very, very sick. Um, you know, cold sweats and everything. So, um, I did <laughs> the next day I was like, I can't do this. This is way too much. So I, I wasn't able to finish it. Yes. You know, we, we've had as many positive stories as negative stories with disulfum, right? And I think, I think one of the important lessons here is that every protocol is not going to work for everyone, right? I mean, each one of us is going to be different. Every one of us is a bio-individual. Every one of us has a different number of bugs spit into us. Each one of us is just very different, right? And I, you know, one of the things that always makes me anxious when I'm, you know, when I watch some of the things that are going on in, in, um, in groups is everyone's taking the same thing at the same time. We're all treating parasites together. And it just makes me really, you know, shake my head and 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 pause because, um, you know, that may be what you need. It may not be what you need, but if you're all doing it together, I would guess most of you don't need it, and it's probably not the best way to treat, right? So that's sort of the downside. That's the downside to some of these social groups where you're encouraged to all do the same thing when it may or may not be working for you. And for you, that often wasn't working. And one of the things that we have heard with some regularity. Is that um, is that folks have mental health issues when they're using uh, you know when they're using disulfum and that it, it, you know in, in those cases it's something you have to walk back and probably think about whether or not that's a good tool for you. For you, it wasn't a good tool, so it was something you used for a couple of days. You started to have um, you know some some negative effects, including some uh, mental health effects, and you walk back and again you're now an empowered patient. You're now somebody who makes decisions about whether or not she's going to use something and out. You know it's this is not going to work for you, and you walk back and you say, "I'm not, I'm not doing that," which is awesome, right? I mean, it's very different than very different than the experience you had when you were uh, in your pre-diagnostic phase, and they say to you, "Go to a go to a behavioral therapist," and even though you don't know, you don't you don't need it, you go take these drugs, you take the drugs, right? We have a very different sour now 
at this phase in your treatment journey, right? And you're now empowered and you're now making decisions. So what do you do next? You take a break from, from the kill phase and what's, what's the next step in your, in your healing process? Yeah. So, um, really quick going back on that. I, I am definitely feel more comfortable going back to my doctor saying, Hey, this didn't work for me because in the past they're like, well, I don't know what to do then. Whereas now he's like, okay, that didn't work for you. Let's find something else. Um, so yeah. So at that point I had stopped taking, um, treatments for a while. The codent, the codent protocol helped a lot. And, um, I'm, I think I, at this point, I'm going to probably get back on it. I'm going to see what my doctor says, but, um, that, so this is, it's been about a year, year and a half now. Um, so maybe six months, seven months ago, um, where I kind of just took a break from everything, uh, cause it was mentally hard and physically hard. So, so it's, not, it's not a break from everything, right? I mean, you went through the pre prehab phase, right? And you started to change your life. You changed your diet, you changed your sleep, you changed everything as part of the prehab, right? You then went through the kill. Now you stopped killing, but all of the important tools that you built up during the prehab phase are the tools you're continuing to use today, right? Right. Yeah. So we're not stopping. We're just we're just stopping the kill, and the kill does have to stop at some point, right? I mean, the bugs are in us. We have to stop the killing of the bugs. We have to allow our immune system to be enhanced with all the tools that we're building, and our immune system is still now serving us, and it's still you know doing the things that need to be done. Because in the end, your immune system is going to win the day, right? And you helped your immune system with that first kill. You helped the immune system, or maybe now the second portion of the kill, and now you're now you're continuing with these good tools. So talk about the stuff you're now doing in this now rehab phase of your of your treatment. Yeah. So, um, like you mentioned, just, uh, continuing with the tools that I do have and really, um, focusing on my mindset, my environment, like nowadays, my morning and night routine are just ritual for me. Like I, I need my good night's sleep and having a great morning start to the day, um, stress-free. Um, I use those tools now daily. So, um, the foods that I eat, the amount of water I drink, the, the environment that I'm in, um, is very important. So now I'm actually back at a point where I'm ready to get back into the treatment and start killing the virus again. Okay. But you did tease us a little bit earlier that you, that you started to do biofeedback, that you were working on, on the neurological loops as part of the now rehab phase, which is a really important, really important part. So talk to us about biofeedback. How is it introduced to you and what has it done for you? Yes. Yeah, so my doctor, um, my Lyme doctor had, um, I just explained to him about the mental part of my symptoms. Um, so it was a lot of anxiety, which I, I was explaining to him, I felt was a lot because I was sick all the time. So I started I didn't have like uh, anxiety my whole life. It wasn't until I got sick all the time. And then I started getting anxious about being sick all the time. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of an endless circle. So now, but I, let's, let's pause that for a second. Do you think you were anxious because you were sick all the time? Do you think possibly it is because you had bugs in your brain? Do you think it's, 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 you know, just sort of a, maybe it's, it's your gut and the vagus nerve cause. I mean, there were a lot of different the, you know, the hormonal issues that you were dealing with, where you're balancing out your HPA axis. I mean, talk about all of those pieces because anxiety is not just one thing. It's probably a combination of things. And if it was for you, how do you start to unpack which of those different elements were causing you to be anxious? 
Yeah. So I, I believe it was definitely all of the above. So at first I thought it was just, you know, I was just anxious because I was sick all the time. Um, and then I started doing more digging about health. And again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when I researched like the gut and brain connection, and then I found out how unbalanced my gut was and how wrecked it was basically from all the antibiotics. I think that triggered, um, a lot of the anxiety just because they go hand in hand, they got in the brain. And then, um, then finding out about Lyme disease, I, and like, you know, attacking your immune system and it attacks your, your mental status as well. And I think that also played a role. So I, I have learned recently that it's not just one thing. Um, it's a lot of chaos going on in my body and it all comes back to one and it allows you to be much more gentle with yourself when you are feeling anxious, right? Now, because you know it's a number of different things, but all, even more importantly, you can now unpack each one of those pieces and you can deal with your anxiety, which of course is triggering you into fight or flight, which you have to learn how to manage. Now, are you using any other tools? Because I think you did share with us that you're using CBD oil as well. And if you are, how has that been helpful with you on um, in dealing with your anxiety? Um, it... So it helps me a lot for going out, um, surprisingly. So, and this is another thing that doesn't help everybody and, but it does help me. Um, so I would get anxious about going out, even just going out to eat, make, you know, making plans again. And, but I, I needed my social life back. So, and I didn't want to take, um, anxiety meds just again, medicine didn't work for me. So, um, I took CBD and I found a, I did realize I learned that some brands didn't work. So, and then I found a, a brand that worked for me and I take Can you share it. with us what brand that is and what type of CBD you're taking. Um, yeah, it's just the, um, uh, CBD tincture oil, um, that you put under your tongue and it's, uh, bloom farms is the company bloom farms. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now is, is this, is this a full spectrum CBD? Is it, is it a particular anxiety CBD and what is the carrier oil? Is it hemp oil? Is it, is it uh, coconut oil? What is, what is the carrier oil that's working for you? Uh, the hemp oil and it's, I believe it's full spectrum and it's interesting because they have a 600 milligram and then they have a 1200 milligram. And usually people want to go for the higher ones. Like, you know, give me all the power you got. But for some reason, the 1200 milligram doesn't help me. And the 600 milligram does. So it, the 1200 doesn't do anything for me. And the 600 milligram helps me really just mostly like the butterflies in your stomach kind of anxious where it's like, you know, I just, I start to get more of that rest and digest and, you know, I'm out with friends and I'm like, I'm okay. I'm fine. And hopefully you're going to be gentle with yourself on that as well, because look, we are living in a toxic world and, uh, and you are somebody who is, you know, at a stage where, you know, those kinds of toxicities could have an impact on your immune system. And that's something that your system is saying to you, let's be careful about, right? Let's be careful about whether or not we're going to be in mold. Let's be careful about whether or not we're going to be around smoke. Let's be careful whether we're going to be around alcohol. Let's make sure we're going to eat, you know, we're not going to have social pressures to eat the kinds of things that will not serve us well because diet has been so important to you. So be gentle with yourself, Sarah. It's okay that your body signals to you that, you know, there, there are a lot of potential challenges that you may have to face and calming down your endocannabinoid system with using some full spectrum CBD is a great tool. And I'm really glad that uh, you've, you've discovered that tool. So are there any other tools that you're using um, to help you on this, on this phase of your maintenance um, of the gains that you've made with your health? Um, I do. 
uh, go in the sauna. So I made sure to find a gym that has a sauna and I read a lot or I've seen a lot of people that do the um, red light therapy and I, I want to try that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do the sauna and sweating out the toxins. So that's um, when you're detoxing. How often are you detoxing in the sauna? Um, like uh, twice a week, probably Great. about twice a week. Yeah. And then I also do a lot of Epsom salt baths. So whenever I get like the muscle aches, nerve pain, Epsom salt baths help a lot. Another great detox tool. So you're, so you're exercising by going to the gym, you're, you're going in the sauna and you're using Epsom salt baths as detoxing tools um, as part of uh, assisting your immune system, which is killing off the bugs in your system uh, going forward. Anything else that you're using that we haven't talked about? Um, not necessarily like a specific item, but having, again, that morning routine, like for me, um, hustle and bustle is very stressful. That's like, that's my stressful environment when it's constantly go, 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 go. Right. So waking up, having, um, my either morning tea or I'll have lemon water. Um, and I like to do my stretches and my yoga and like, I like, quiet and <laughs> don't want to get up and like be like talking to people and on my phone and you know seeing the chaos in the world so that has been um extremely important in my day-to-day -day life is having a quiet morning so an intentional schedule so that you can start your day uh in a healthy way yes yep. so you're so you, you you're now intentional about the time you go to bed you're intentional about the time you get up you're intentional about the steps that you take after you get up so that the meat machine is not working properly and then you can go forward with your day. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, and this is, this is brilliant stuff. It really is fantastic stuff. So now let's talk about the last set of questions I'm going to ask you before, before Ashley um, talks with you about the transformation. And I want you to take a moment now and look back at the 17 year old kid who first started having her symptoms. And I want you to tell her what you would tell her so that she could have a different experience on this journey. Cause you've had a long journey now over the last 10 years now of your life. What would you tell her so that she would have a shorter set of steps to take in order to be able to make the great gains that you've made? Um, well, the first thing I would tell her is listen to your body. Um, I feel like that's super, super important. Um, and just, remember that you may not be who you are right now, who you want to be right now, but you're a work in progress um, and you are going to get there. Um, if, you know, whenever you get through a bump in the road, like you're going to get, get through it. And um, also just get more than one opinion, not, you know, doctors are also human beings and sometimes they are wrong or sometimes they just don't know. So, you know, it just always take that next opinion. Don't listen to just one opinion and go from there. And especially if you, again, feel it in your gut that that's not the right answer. So, and, and that's very powerful, right? I mean, that's a really important part of the lesson that you've taught everyone with this podcast, which is you had to get to a point where you are now allowing the internal uh, system to be listened to as opposed to these outside testing systems, right? And 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 you you had to develop a healthy relationship with the doctor so that you could partner together in achieving the outcomes that you have achieved. Now, 
in the same vein, are there any things that you would do differently that you did do? Meaning are there things that you would you did that you wouldn't do or the things that you would have done earlier or differently than you did do them on the, on the healing journey? Well, knowing what I know now, I would have taken the um, holistic route much earlier. <laughs> I would have, um, they were the only doctors that actually helped me really in the long run. So I would see more um, holistic nutritional doctors. And, the, and was there anything either in your culture or your experience or your training that created an impediment for you to get to the natural doctors earlier? Because in most cases, what we find is people sort of like get through all the Western doctors. They all suck, you know, fails for years. And you're like, all right, I'll try them. You know, were, were you in that position as well? Yeah, because um, again, I, I had grown up believing the traditional, like, you know, a doctor, you go see a doctor and if you're sick, they're going to make you feel better. They're going to make you better. They know what to do. Um, so I was very naive at that point about holistic nutrition. And I just, I grew up thinking the Western medicine was the only way to make you feel better. Right. The illusion we talked about before. All right. Now, my last set of questions are now going to be asking you to now look in a different direction. I've asked you to now look back into the past and speak to the young woman who first got sick. Now, I'm going to ask you to look forward. I'm going to ask you to talk to the woman that you're going to be, the woman who is who is fully healthy, who's getting ready to be healthy when she gets married, who's going to be uh, parenting her children the way she wants to, who's going to be the entrepreneur that she wants to be. That woman's waiting for you to get there. What is she telling you you need to do to get from where you are here to get to where she is, where she's waiting for you? Um, to keep to keep fighting, fight through it, you and just letting her know that you're going to, she's going to get there. There's a lot of times where I wonder if I'm ever going to get there. And so like the future me would be telling me that I will get there and just really be gentle on myself. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for your story. I relate so much to everything you're saying. And I'm curious to know, having had Lyme and going through this, how has it been transformational for you? What have you learned? What's the biggest piece that you're taking away from this? Um, I, I think just really being grateful for what my body can do. It's just like been um, really eye-opening to see how easily and quickly you can damage your body. And then also just how amazing your body can work to heal itself. Like it just, it just knows what to do. And it's so, so crazy to me. So, um, yeah. It is so amazing how resilient we can be when we're under pressure and to see what we can go through and how we come out on the other end. And I wanted to ask you too, learning what you've learned, how did that affect how you interact with other people? Did it inspire you to want to help other people? And what does that look like for you? Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny you say that because when I was going through the, um, Herx and when it was really, really bad, I remember laying in bed, just thinking like, I don't want anyone else to feel like this. And I don't want anyone else to feel like this and not have any resources or not know what to do. So that is when I really started to build my social community, um, mainly on Instagram and 
I just wanted a place that people could come to and relate to other people because I know how lonely it can feel. Um, even, I mean, even for me, who's had a very supportive, you know, family, friends, loved ones, um, it still feels very lonely a lot of times because they, they try to understand, but they don't fully understand. Um, and then just imagining people who don't have that support or, you know, people who really just, you know, don't want to, I mean, I just hear really sad stories from other people. So I wanted to, that's why I have my Instagram really is so people can talk with me. They can relate to me. They can not feel alone. And then they also just have the resources that they need to get through either treatment or any, you know, even just their daily pain. (laughs) I think that's really great because I think that when we are herxing and we are that sick, it can feel so lonely. And for me, I was very depressed and exactly nobody understands it until you've experienced that. Nobody really knows what that's like. So I think that's really great to have that. Is there anything from your past that you've used and implemented into your skills to want to advocate for other Lyme patients? Um, what do you mean? I don't understand the question. Like from your um, childhood and things that you were interested in or your marketing and what you were going to school for, do you feel like any of those things have affected kind of what you do now on social media? Oh yeah, definitely. I, I learned in my like business life and college life, I learned a lot about business and marketing and I never really knew what to do with it. Um, I just kind of thought I'd get a nine to five in like a marketing department. Um, I never really had like a, I guess, um, really, I had this like void of like, what am I really supposed to be doing with my life? Cause it wasn't sitting at an office working to make someone else money for doing whatever. I don't know what it is. Um, but yeah, so I took a lot of that skill. Um, and I worked in a, in, in the industry of marketing and specifically social media marketing. And I got a lot of really great connections and have worked with some really amazing people on the whole back end and learned a lot about that. And then I implemented that into my social media and in a way that, so I can get my page to, so people will see that I have this community that people can come to. So I think a lot of my marketing skills have been implemented in my social media and um, not, I'm not like making any money from just having like an Instagram. It's really just for people to come to. I think it's really great. I've seen your page and I always feel seen and heard right away. Like immediately. That's what I get. I'm like, yes, yes. I have gone through that. Yes. I agree with that. (laughs) Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. I'm so glad. (laughs) So, and we can tell you, Sarah, that's why you're here, right? I mean, we've been big fans of yours for a long, long time uh, because you do have a way of capturing very complex concepts and explaining them or portraying them in a very simple and understandable way. I mean, you're, you're just absolutely brilliant at doing that. And, and that's why we couldn't wait to get you on the podcast so that we can help people to see, you know, in a long form podcast, uh, what your journey was, what got you to this point where you gained the insight and now using all these really powerful tools that you developed um, as a, an entrepreneur and a social media marketer. 
uh, it's just a brilliant combination. So uh, we, we we love what you're doing, and we certainly want to you know give you give you your due by acknowledging that here and encouraging you to continue to do it. Thank you, thank you so much. I love it's nice hearing from the outside perspective because you never really know when you're on the inside. <laughs> so it's great to hear. It is certain it is certainly working. So now we're going to let Ashley ask you the final question of your very powerful interview. Uh, what advice would you give to others who are not sick looking to protect their families from tick disease? Um, always be loving and supportive towards others, um, whether they're struggling with an illness or not. Um, one thing that I've really learned from my journey is you don't, you don't know what other people are going through because um, you know, people like me and you, we still go out in the world with a smile on our face, but we could be in a lot of pain and nobody would know. So um, that's the first thing, just always be loving and supportive towards others who are struggling with illnesses and tick disease. And then just be a kind human being to everybody because you don't know. Um, and then the best way to really protect is to obviously wear tick repellent Um year long, really, um, whenever you're outside, even if you're on the West Coast, East Coast, Midwest, like anywhere. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of toxic free um, tick repellents. I've found some that have like lemongrass in them and stuff like that. Um, and check your house for mold and watch the toxins that are going into your body. Because I mean, like I explained earlier with that um, disulfiram medication, I had no idea how much alcohol was in our daily products. Like, you know, something that even says clean beauty or whatever still can give you reactions. So really just watch the toxins that are going into your body and then your environmental toxins and just take care of yourself. So Sarah, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your really busy schedule to uh, share your really powerful story. And Ashley Marber, thank you so much for joining me as a special guest co-host on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you so much, Rich. Thank you so yeah. much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Sarah Lombard. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you would like to learn more about Sarah Lombard, her Instagram handle is Sarah underscore Lombard. That's L-O-M-B as in boy, A-R-D. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tech Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tech Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that is inspired by the information that has been provided by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note, we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get automatic episode updates for our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank our community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thanks for listening. <laughs>